This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've practiced for over 25 years. I decided a couple of years ago to start a podcast to basically extend the walls of my practice. I wanted to reach people who might already be interested in psychological or emotional issues, or perhaps people who had just been diagnosed with PTSD or depression or anxiety or might be having relationship issues that they're really stuck in. And then, of course, the third group, those of you who might be listening that might never have considered therapy or even talking to a therapist, but would be interested in listening to what someone like me might have to say. So welcome to all of you. Today, we're going to be talking about work life. Are you happy at work? Getting along at work? I've been asked by so many people to do a podcast on this, and I was a little bit hesitant because, frankly, for most of my life, I've worked for myself, whether that was leading my band when I was a professional singer or being in private practice as a psychologist. However, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people in 25 years who have worked. And really, one of the fascinating things about being a therapist is that you get to hear about so many different walks of life. So I decided to think about it in sort of a psychological way, what makes you happy at work and what, as many of you know that I focus on, what can you do about becoming more satisfied? We're going to touch on a study that shows what makes people happy at work, but also about attachment style. That's a concept about your interaction with your primary caregiver when you were very young and actually how that pattern can affect you in later life and how it will affect you at work. It's a huge topic, but hopefully we will talk about it in a way that makes it something you can actually use in your own life. Our listener email today is from a parent who's trying to get her teenage daughter to be more comfortable expressing her feelings, and I actually thought that she had a great idea. So I'm going to share it with you. So whether you're driving to work or taking a walk or just sitting and listening, today we're going to be focusing on being happy or happier at work. When a new patient contacts me and tells me either I hate my relationship or I hate my job, I know that they're in trouble because obviously both of those things are so primary in our lives. We spend hours both in our relationships and on the job. Many people go to work in a workplace that's far from pleasant for them and they even have a sense of dread about checking in. One thing to perhaps remember is that there are downsides to every job. When people learn that I was a jingle singer in Dallas in my 20s, I sang commercials They'll say, wow, how cool is that? But what they don't know is that most jingle singers don't ever know how much they're going to be used, so they don't know how much money they're going to make. They don't know that the job requires incredible musical precision. You see the music, the mics go on, and you're expected to sing it perfectly. So there's a lot of pressure. 
And then when they hear that I was a nightclub singer, let's just say a lot of people don't even pay attention to you. You're part of the backdrop of their having a drink or dinner. You really have to become somebody for people to want to hear you and come for that. And until you get there, you have to put up with a lot of rejection and even downright rudeness. But that's part of my history. I just want to point out that every job, no matter how wonderful or even glamorous it sounds, has its downside. So what does research show as the major factors in what offers the most happiness or satisfaction at work? I saw one study that said it was the level of pay. One said that the freedom to be flexible was most important. But I found an article in Forbes written by Jacob Morgan that had 200,000 participants from all over the world, so it certainly seemed comprehensive. It was done by the Boston Consulting Group, and they cited the top 10 factors in job happiness. So let's go over the top 10, starting with number 10. Number 10 is company values. Here we're talking about the culture of the organization. Do you agree with the values? Are you aligned with them? It struck me that this would be very different for different generations. What Gen Xers want, millennials might not value. Certainly millennials now really want something far different than baby boomers did. So company values is number 10. Number nine is interesting job content. Do you like what you do? Is it interesting to you? Number eight is going to surprise you, because I imagine many of you think number eight is actually number one, and that is an attractive fixed salary. So it was much lower on the list than many people, including me, would have thought. And it's interesting that they also say fixed, so that you know what you're going to be making every week or every month. Number seven is job security. Obviously, if you fear being laid off or fired all the time, if it's constantly on your mind, then that can set up incredible stress and worry. And you can begin to be hypervigilant to the point of being uptight and you don't enjoy your job. If you're being criticized by a boss or a supervisor all the time and feel so much pressure to do well, to prove your worth to the company, that can be a problem. But if you know that your job is secure then obviously that makes you happier. Here's number six. Are there learning and career development opportunities? How are you getting a chance to grow your own potential? This is something that a lot of people talk to me about, approaching their supervisors with assertiveness about their own potential. And women really struggle with this. In Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, she quotes a study where if a man fits 30% of the criteria for a job opportunity, he'll apply. For a woman, it's 95%. A woman has to feel like she is practically perfect for a job or an opportunity before she'll submit her name, before she'll interview. So women suffer a lot more from what's called imposter syndrome, and I do have an episode on that. Number five is a basic one. Is the company financially stable? If the boat seems to be sinking, then it's hard to be happy about being on the boat, obviously. And of course, this is also tied in with job security. Number four is good relationships with your superiors. Do you respect them? Do you like them? Do you feel that they are a good leader? What's their management style? Do they micromanage? Do you wish they would be more 
hands-on. Again, this is something sometimes that can be talked about or discussed. You can have a mentor in your company that helps you talk to your own supervisor about what are your unique needs and what kind of relationship you want with them. Number three is a really good work-life balance. Now, some of this is up to you, but some of it is also about the company culture. The part that's up to you, for example, if you're avoiding going home because you're unhappy in your relationship, then you might overwork because of that. Or if you're working overtime because finances are tight, then work-life balance goes out the window. If you're perfectionistic, you can value work over play. We talked about that in episode 123. Or if you're in a highly competitive culture at work where your superiors pit you against other employees, then that balance can also be way out of whack. The millennial generation seems to have this much more in mind when they are seeking job opportunities because I guess they have seen their parents or their grandparents not enjoy their lives because of working so very hard. Now, the older generation sometimes see that as spoiled. But actually, when you think about it, a good work-life balance may make your life a lot happier. And since it's number three on the list, that would seem to be true. Number two is having good relationships with your colleagues. And we're going to be talking about this when we talk about attachment style. But that's number two on the list. And number one, wish I had a drum roll here, (laughs) appreciation for your work. Now, this brought a huge smile to my face because, of course, as a psychologist, I thought, of course, feeling appreciated is a feeling. It's an emotion that likely brings with it a sense of community. You feel important. You have a place in the organization, no matter how small or large, you feel like you matter. So is your work environment one in which you feel appreciated? And if not, the study shows you're simply not going to be as happy. So let's talk about your relationship with your colleagues. And we're going to talk about a psychological concept called attachment style. There was famous research done in the 1950s and 60s by a man named Harry Harlow. And a lot of psychologists at that time believed that babies became attached to their mothers because the mothers provided food, and that was it. But he believed that it was more the social contact. So what he did, he took infant monkeys from their biological mothers and gave them two inanimate surrogate mothers. One was a construction of wire and wood, and the second one was covered in foam rubber and soft terry cloth. Whether or not the wire mother or the terry cloth mother was providing food, the experiment showed that the infant monkeys spent significantly more time with the terry cloth mother than they did with the wire mother. And interestingly enough, when they created a situation where only the wire mother had food, the babies came to the wire mother to feed, but immediately returned to cling to the cloth mother. This seemed to be truly groundbreaking evidence that the parent-child attachment was what was most important. But of course, that attachment doesn't always go very well. If a child has a primary caregiver who's attentive, responsive, protective, the child will feel loved, secure, and self-assured. But it can cause extreme anxiety when the child does not feel that. Now, you may be listening and going, okay, so what does this have to do 
with work. Basically, we all develop a style of connecting, a style of attaching because of this. When all goes well enough, you have what's called a secure attachment. And these are really lucky folks. What you do in the workplace, if you tend to securely attach to connect with people, you work hard, you can say no, you know you're competent and you're fairly confident and easy to get along with. You know how to prioritize your time and ask for help. The only problem with a secure attachment is if sometimes you assume that you know too much. You need to ask questions. But then there are three attachment styles that can cause more problems. One is called the anxious preoccupied attachment. These are folks who will be afraid of upsetting others and do a lot of things that you might believe will prevent that from happening. You won't say no. You'll have trouble setting boundaries. Or you may tend to jump to a negative conclusion about information you're getting from others. You'll see rejection when perhaps it's not there. So if this is you, there are things you can do. Again, what can you do about it? Check things out with your peers or a mentor for reassurance. Work on positive self-talk. You can ask yourself the question, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely is it that this is truly about what I think it's about, what I fear? You can practice saying no with friends or family. Again, it's your anxiety that's driving you. You don't want to make anyone mad. Or you want to be such a great worker that you end up not setting boundaries. Again, that work-life balance. And you can work too much. The second one is what's called a dismissive avoidant attachment. Now, if this is you, you have an attitude that you're a bit better or smarter or more efficient than others around you. And that can cause distrust and problems with being part of a team. If you're like this, you'll tend to decide for yourself what's important and work very hard on that, but then turn around and be late on deadlines that others set and then have to work overtime. What can you do about this? You can begin to recognize other strengths and stop criticizing, even if you do it covertly, stop criticizing them to yourself. Your job here may be to adopt a bit more humility. The next one is fearful avoidant attachment. These folks are filled with dread and feel that every minute they may make a mistake. They struggle with trusting themselves, always feeling that they have to walk on eggshells. And actually, they can even grow apathetic. Again, remember the word avoidant. Not getting work done and falling behind. And then dreading the inevitable conversation of why that's happening. So what do you do if you have a tendency toward this kind of attachment? You can use the same kind of approach that anxious, preoccupied folks have, like seeking a mentor or trying to make sure you're staying rational. But you can also confront whatever apathy you have by setting your own small goals that you want to start for yourself. These small goals will help you find more structure so you don't avoid things. You actually create your own little structure and then reward yourself and be proud of yourself for meeting those goals. You're confronting your fear. I got this information from an article by Elizabeth Grace Saunders, who's a time management coach and the author of The Three Secrets to Effective Time Investment. And she's a regular contributor at the Harvard Business Review. So again, just to go over them again, there's secure attachment, which we hope we all have, (laughs) but most of us probably do not. The other three are what's called anxious and preoccupied attachment, 
dismissive avoidant attachment and fearful avoidant attachment. So maybe you can think about yourself, think about your colleagues and how you might want to tweak your own approach to them and your own work. Our listener email today is from someone who's trying to raise a teenage daughter and wants to help her learn how to express her feelings. She writes, Dear Dr. Margaret, I want to start off by thanking you for sharing your podcasts. I stumbled upon them several months ago and have since then become a fan and learning so much. I hear so often that people stumble upon my podcast. It's interesting. I wish I could help people not stumble so much. My question is regarding my teenage daughter. She's a quiet type that is somewhat standoffish and reserved when it comes to sharing how she feels. Often I see her withdraw when she's struggling with something, so I'll reach out to try to help her process what's going on in her head. She says that she has a hard time putting into words how she's feeling. I can certainly understand this struggle, as I too am far less likely to be vulnerable with others and share how I feel. I was wondering if you could share some tips on how to get her to open up and feel more comfortable. We do journaling and then talk through those topics of concern, and this approach has helped, but I wondered if there was something we could do to help her feel more comfortable sharing her feelings. Maybe it just takes practice. As I write this, I'm realizing that this question is just as much about me as it is about me helping her. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Thank you in advance for your consideration. So I wrote back to her. Hello, I'm so glad to hear from you, and wow, what a great mom. I think you're right on target. The more you model opening up, the more your daughter will see that it's okay, and actually that may lead to better understanding and connection. I remember when I saw the first signs of anxiety in my son. It was hard to see because I knew, of course, that genetically he'd inherited that tendency from me. But when he opened up about it, I know that he'd also gotten that from me. Sounds like the gentle approach of journaling is working. I don't treat teenagers now, although I used to, but you might want to steer her toward a younger role model that has really opened up a lot, like Demi Lovato. Look for others in her world that she admires that are open about talking about what they've struggled with, because peer support is always effective. Brene Brown's work on vulnerability might also be an avenue for both of you. I think her most recent book is one called Daring Greatly. I'm so glad the podcast have helped and very much appreciate you letting me know. I think this is so important. Parents forget that they are modeling through their own behavior what their teenagers or even adult children will be comfortable with. When your children see you opening up about your own vulnerability, your own feelings, your own anxiety, your own fear, your own sadness, then they're much more likely to absorb that and learn how to talk about their own. Of course, the opposite is also true. The more you talk about the things you're proud of, that you feel competent within, the things you enjoy, the things that give your life purpose, then your child will also absorb that. Parenting is really hard. And as we talked about in this episode, Even your style of attaching to your own child affects their life.
Thanks so much for being a listener today to Self Work. And I hope that this has been informative and somewhat fun. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. Please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I would love to hear from you. I love getting to know who's listening and what they like and don't like. I also so appreciate ratings and reviews, especially the written ones on iTunes, because it only takes a few minutes and you can remain anonymous, but I learn so much about what is actually appreciated and what works on this podcast. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can join me there and subscribe, and you'll get a copy of my weekly blog post and this podcast. So it's an easy way of keeping in touch with me. I'm also over on Instagram. I'm doing something kind of fun. 100 days of what I've learned as a therapist. I'm having a great time. You might join me over there. Then there's one more way. I've started a closed Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. So I'd love for you to be there as well. We're up to almost 700 members from all over the world. And people are really sharing and supporting one another. So thank you for being here today. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret. And you've been listening to Self-Work.